0: Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Epic Knight. And I'm Andrew Nicholson. And today on the show, we're recapping our recent webinar. We're going to talk about main cities versus small towns. Do it in your voice. You know you want to. Small towns. <laughs> now, if you didn't make it along to our webinar and you haven't yet listened to the whole recording, which we will release as well, we want to recap the main points. And the reason we want to do this is because we put so much effort and research into this particular webinar. I would say this was our best one yet. And there was so much data crunched in advance for this. So what we're going to do in today's episode is go back and forth going through our main arguments. And of course, whenever we do one of these debates where Andrew and I debate one another, we usually take three main points each. So in this case, Andrew was arguing for main cities, investing in main cities. I took the small town approach because that's my background. And you're
1: a small town girl.
0: Just a small town boy. <laughs> no, <it's- laughs> no, yes. I'm oh, yes. a small town boy, Yes, yeah, In South sorry. Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into this, Andrew. What was your first argument at that webinar? Just briefly, going uh, for main cities.
1: Look, the main thing, my takeaway was it's about capital growth. And 53% of investors... Want security of capital gains and tenancies. So that was my main focus. And, you know, we know with the main centres, you've got a stronger economy, more diversified economy, and main centres provide more consistent capital growth between the suburbs. And so we looked at the data around how the highest growing suburb in Hamilton and the lowest growing suburb, the spread on that was far less significant than somewhere like Northland or Manawatu, Wanganui. And then of course, the other factor is population growth. So if you take Auckland, for example, over the next 20 years, there is expected population growth of 33%. That's huge. And then Canterbury, 19%. Southland, one of your smaller regions, less than 1%. And the West Coast, of course, negative three, which we always love to have We go at West Coast. And so of course, why the spread being low is important is because If you pick the wrong suburb in a small region or a small town, you're going to end up potentially really suffering. Whereas if you get the wrong suburb in Hamilton, it has far less impact on that capital growth. And population growth, of course, the reason that's important is because we need demand to actually have capital growth apply. And of course, you want a large pool of tenants. So if you've got large population growth, then you've got a far higher chance of finding a tenant when your property is vacant. Oh, very good arguments.
0: Now, coming over to small towns, my first and opening argument is that it is much cheaper and easier to get into. And my evidence is this the average house price in Auckland is over $1.1 million. And so, if you're investing in a property with a 40% deposit, you're going to need equity of $460,000, usable equity of $460,000. If you go to a small town, and I'm thinking Buller District, which is in the West Coast, the average house price there is only about $230,000. In fact, it's less than that as at December 2020. That means even if you're investing with a 40% deposit, you need less than hundred dollars to get going. And that's going to make it over five times easier than if you were investing in our largest city. And so for investors who are lighter on equity, who don't have half a million dollars in their own house in terms of usable equity, which they can then use to invest in Auckland at a 40% deposit, it's going to be so much easier in a small town. The other reason that small towns can be really good, and this stems off that, is that if you're an active investor, it gives you so much more flexibility because you're more likely to buy a standalone house. You're more likely to be able to afford a plot of bigger land. And that means there's more land to build a minor dwelling, more land to subdivide. It also means that if you're buying a standalone house versus a townhouse, there's no restrictions on what you can do to the exterior of the property because nobody's conjoined with you. And so if you're an active investor who wants, to be able to run some of these other strategies, a small town can be much more attractive than somewhere like Auckland if you have a limited amount of equity. If you don't have the money to be able to afford to buy a million dollar house with a 40% deposit and then fund the renovations on top of that. So that for me, as well as the fact that, and we went over this in the webinar as well, that small towns generally have the same capital growth or have at least over the last 20 years exhibited the same level of capital growth as some of those main centres. So that's my opening argument for small towns.
1: Which leads me into my rebuttal, which is, around the consistency of capital growth because it doesn't just matter what the total growth is, it matters when it happens too because if you end up buying a property and yes, it gets the same growth but over a much longer period, if you're wanting to grow a portfolio, you're gonna be stifled if you don't get that growth right away. And if you have 10 years and it's relatively flat and it doesn't allow you to buy the next property, you're gonna erode your usable equity pretty quickly by doing this. And so what we did is we looked at the regions which recovered fastest after their peak in 07 and 08. And so Auckland was the absolute fastest. It only took three years, eight months to recover. Canterbury was second with four years, two months. Bay of Plenty, five years and six months at third place. And Waikato at six years and four months. So these larger regions recovered a lot faster, so if you bought in one of these regions which are larger, then the recovery happening sooner is obviously really important. Take on the other end of the spectrum, West Coast took 12 years and six months. That's huge. Gisborne, 10 years and nine months. Southland, nine years and three months. So buying in those larger regions gives you more certainty around that capital growth happening in a shorter period
0: of time. Oh, a very good rebuttal. Now, my next one in terms of small towns. In fact, you need to compliment me on my arguments as well, Andrew. uh, Great haircut and good arguments. Thank you. Now, smaller towns have much higher gross yields. Now, Andrew, I know you're about to try and rebut me and talk about net yields, but let me tell you why gross yields are important. Because when you're building a property portfolio, the bank does not look at your net yield they look at your gross yield. They then take 25% of that off and assess whether you can afford a property based on that gross yield. And you need a high gross yield if your new purchases aren't going to have any impact on your current income or on your UMI, if essentially they are self-servicing. Now the gross yield you need for that is about 9.4% using ANZ's 5.8% test rate. And what we found when we looked at every council across New Zealand, is there is a very strong inverse correlation between population size and gross yields. What I mean by that is the smaller the region, the smaller the district, the fewer people who live there, the higher gross yield you tend to get. Now, the reason behind that is that in smaller towns, house prices are cheaper. And so within the webinar, we looked at some of the top highest gross yielding suburbs and these are places like Cobden in Grey District or Matauda in Gore, Blaketown in Grey District again or Patea in South Taranaki. All of these suburbs have really strong gross yields and if you buy a decent yielding property, within those suburbs, you're probably going to pass the bank servicing tests and have a self-servicing <laughs> property. Now, that's really important if you're already tapped out from a servicing perspective. If you've already got a couple of investment properties in the main centres, that's where you'd look at some small towns and say, hey, I don't have the income to be able to keep expanding a portfolio. I'm going to go find very high yielding properties in some of these smaller towns where house prices are cheaper and so the yields are really strong.
1: I do have to compliment you on your pronunciation, Ed. You've come a long way. I'm trying my best. I want to rebut that by talking about the fact that, hey, look, yield means nothing. Gross yield means nothing. This is like a business. And I've said it time and time again, turnover, or in this case, revenue, is vanity. Profit is sanity. It really comes down to that bottom line, which is your net yield. When you look at the eight key costs for any rental property... There are certain costs that are absolutely fixed, you know, your rates, your insurance, your accounting, and your maintenance, compared to your property management, your lending fee, vacancy, and your interest rate. And so because of course you've got these costs that are relatively the same, such as rates. So if you took the lower hut rates, which the average rates are two thousand two hundred and thirty-nine dollars compared to Waitomo, which is $2,837, but the rent in Waitomo is $295 a week compared to Lower Hutt of 490 the week's worth of rent that you need to collect to pay those rates in Waitomo is 9.6. Lower Hutt's only 4.6. And so, of course, your smaller towns have higher operational costs. So an Auckland property worth say $1.2 million might have a gross yield of 4.1. Invercargill, $400,000 might have a gross yield of 6. So there's a 1.9% difference in that revenue. Remember, revenue vanity. The operational costs for Auckland as a percentage, 1.2%. Invercargill, 2.3. So the net yield, what drops out of the bottom in Auckland is 2.9%, and Invercargill is 3.7. So there's only 0.8% difference in cash flow. And when we convert that into real dollars, it doesn't make a lot of difference. And then of course, that has a major impact on deferred capital maintenance.
0: Now just to recap this, because we haven't talked about deferred capital maintenance for a while, so
1: divert capital maintenance is your cost-like a uh, roof, something that needs to be replaced at some stage, and often if you buy a property and you know the roof needs to be done in the next five years, it's a significant outlay in terms of cost. So let's talk about the impact of it. So if you buy a property in Auckland with $1.2 million, just the one property, and then we look at the post-tax cash flow over 10 years, up 48000 and then the capital growth over 10 years, seven hundred and fifty-five one roof, say $30,000, your end position is 768500 Now, if we look at, say, Invercargill again, that $400,000 property, well, with my $1.2 million, I can buy three. The cash flow in 10 years is $115,000 up because, of course, I've got a higher net yield. The capital growth, seven hundred we'll assume it's the same, but deferred capital maintenance... Well, we don't have one roof to replace. We've got three. So now that's $90,000 off the bottom line.
0: So let me just get this straight. You're saying that even though Invercargill has better cash flow, much better cash flow, that the fact that you're replacing an extra two roofs basically negates that. Absolutely. Oh, a very interesting point. (laughs) Let's get on to the third. My final argument is that active investors and people who are pretty savvy can probably get some good deals in smaller towns. So when we run the numbers, we know that it takes much longer to sell a house in small towns and small districts. In fact, in a place like Ruapehu, it takes over 100 days on average over the last 28 years. It's taken over 100 days in order to be able to sell a house. Now, it's well under 40, well under a month for some of those main cities, places like Auckland, for instance. Now, what that means is those smaller towns, those smaller districts are a very illiquid market. The market for housing is illiquid, What I mean by that, I mean that it's hard to get your money out quickly because it takes longer to sell a house. Now, for us property investors there's an opportunity there. Because if you've then got people who need to liquidate their house relatively quickly, who need to turn that into cash, we've then got the ability to negotiate. So if we are able to provide them with what they need, which is liquidity, which is their money quickly, we're more able to negotiate a deal. So if they care more about having the money out than they care about what the final price is, That provides an opportunity for us, especially if we're long term property investors. Of course, we then have to be careful that we're not buying into an area which is illiquid and then we struggle to get our money out at the end when we eventually need to sell it. Of course, that is a fair rebuttal which I'd expect Andrew to make. But nonetheless, that does provide an opportunity for investors who want to get on the ground to negotiate deals, renovate, and then refinance. There are certainly deals to be had. Now, that's the quick fire view of the arguments. Of course, they go into even more sophistication and detail if you want to listen to that full audio recording, we will release that as a podcast. Or if you missed it, then I would highly recommend watching the video replay of that because we have crunched some serious data and some serious numbers in this webinar presentation. So I'm going to link that into the show notes. Tap will swipe over the cover art. You'll be able to find that to watch that replay or just go to opuspartners.co.nz. You'll find it in our webinar library. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nichols. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.